turn once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. I say once again, for you it's once again. For me, it's the first time uh, since I've been gone for several months. I looked up on the internet how to preach again, so <laughs> I hope I get through it okay. <clears throat> this is found on page 557 in the uh, Bible that you'll find in the pew. That's the blue book there, the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And then abruptly, surprisingly, as he does again and again, go eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O gracious Lord, come to us in your Holy Spirit and give us an understanding of this passage. Lord, that we may believe your truth, that we may enter into your view of life, that we may believe ultimately in your goodness and grace, and that we may come to our everyday lives knowing that God is present with us and that he favors us and approves us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray. Amen. You'll see the uh, outline on page eight in your bulletin. Very simple. Uh, first six verses fall under in the hand of God and the last 
under the approval of God. And the hand of God is basically a statement of everything is under the absolute sovereignty of God. And while that is wonderful and amazing, as we will see, it is also strange and absolutely mysterious And so much of it is hidden from us as to why God does what he does. And yet in the midst of this bizarre and frustrating world, we are called to enjoy him and find him in everyday life. That's the scope of what we will deal with this morning. And the first verses here under the hand of God state that everyone suffers the same misfortune. Everyone dies. And there's no sense as to who dies when. You can't, you can't equate a, a certain lifestyle with a certain age of a person even. It's impossible to tell by circumstances really who has God's favor and who does not. That's why the phrase, whether it is love or hate. Is is God against this man because he died at 18 years old? Is God for this man because he lived to be 88? You can't tell. The same things happen to everybody. Even as Jesus said in Matthew 5, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Willy-nilly. Without a division between them. All people suffer in a tornado or hurricane. All people benefit from the food that God gives. And so this passage is declaring to us uh, much in that that, uh, Latin phrase, Memento mori, remember death or remember that you must die. And you don't know when it will happen. That's a statement to every human being. As one guy says, death has pointed its headlights on us and it started its engines. That's to be your daily picture. The headlights are on you. The engine has started. Death is coming. Bruce Evanson writes, Not a believer necessarily. Anything can happen. Anything or nothing. Who can say the world monstrous is made that way and in the end consumes us all? Pretty good summary of one aspect of Ecclesiastes. And so even in this life, though, as he has stated case that everyone dies, there's this further evil at the end of verse three, the children of man are full of evil and madnesses in their hearts while they live. Riken says how desperately and discouragingly sinful we all are in the face of coming death. We see moral insanity all around us, how we destroy ourselves with substances. We kill our own family members. We attack people that we don't know, and then we die. What a grim picture of our future and our present. The bumper sticker, eat well, stay fit, and die anyway. (laughs) 
But certainly life is better than death, isn't it? (laughs) You get a little bit of that in verses 4 through 6. And we come upon that great phrase that, and, and, and it recalls to me one of my absolute favorite peanuts that I've had cut out for decades. Uh, <clears throat> and it goes like this. There's a, the cartoon is entitled Theology and the Dog, right? Snoopy's on his house and he's typing away at his book entitled Theology and the Dog. <clears throat> so Charlie Brown walks up. Uh, Snoopy pulls out the paper, hands it to Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown reads it. A living dog is better than a dead lion. He hands it back to Snoopy and he says, what does that mean? And Snoopy in his little bubble thought says, I don't know, but I agree with it. (laughs) (laughs) And... That almost is like us here. We're, we're not even as sure as Snoopy what this means, right? And, and of course, it's saying that the noble, glorious lion, which Scripture says described as the bravest, greatest of all animals, right? And then in that day, the dog was this miserable scavenger that everybody hated, uh, that just went around eating dead things and, and attacking people. Even a a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's like a a fellow just scraping by in this life, barely able to make ends meet. He's doing a lot better than the dead billionaire. Like the old joke, you know, of the guy that decided he's very, very rich and he decided he was going to be buried in a... Mercedes convertible and he was propped up in the driver's seat and as the crane lets the convertible down into this gigantic grave one of the guys standing there says to his partner his his uh, friend man that's really living <laughs> so that's the point living at least is better than being dead and but at first it doesn't look like the living know they will die But the dead know nothing. So it almost sounds sarcastic. Well, at least the living know they're going to (laughs) die. Well, that's not great. (laughs) The dead aren't worried about it anymore, you might think. But he's saying the living know they're going to die and they can still do something about life. And his point at the end is the dead can do nothing anymore. The dead have nothing in regard to this life. Those who are living... As hard as life is, as hard as it is to face the uh, terrible randomness and emptiness of life as it faces us and the certainty of death and the fact that evil is all around us, it's better to be alive, better to be alive and to use this life. And so, as the famous illustration that I've heard maybe in the first months of being a Christian, of the loom that we see uh, only the bottom of, right? 
uh, we don't see the beautiful design God is creating on front. And uh, one commentator actually says, but we must view it from the top. But the problem is we can't see the top. We will never see the top in this world. We'll only see the underside, underside of it. And what we, what we stare at just makes no sense. Tangles and knots and willy-nilly stitching everywhere. And, and from us, it looks like a three-year-old got a hold of the threads. Uh, if, you're, if you view Monet's Weeping Willow at the Kimball and you get really close to it, all it is is a mass of undecipherable paint. You can't make anything of it. You back up to about 20 or 30 feet, which is where I like to view impersonist paintings, there it is, a weeping willow. Look, I can see the road. But we never get that view of life. We just see these massive, uh, indecipherable marks of paint. We don't see above the loom. But we do trust that it. That things are indeed in the hand of this God. We believe, as we will see here, in the very presence of God in the midst of this maddening world. And the promises of God to us in the midst of this vain and random and ruined underside. And so we actually, as we transition to this second Part under the approval of God, we look to this sovereignty of God that is so undecipherable, and yet we embrace and acknowledge that His sovereignty is our only foundation for happiness. To know that God is absolutely in control. Whether we see it, we understand it, we read it, He is an an, in control of all things. As Psalm 31 15 says, my times are in your hand. All my times, all my circumstances, my situations, my encounters, my disappointments and losses and gains and benefits, my life, every part of it, every part of every person's life, all of cities and states and peoples and nations, anything global or personal, Everything is in his hands. That's the foundation for our happiness. We're not in control. We can't see it. We can't perceive it. But he is sovereign. The things outside our control are in very good hands. And nothing is outside of his control. And before we move on, let me say... In, throughout Ecclesiastes, and this section is no different, God understands profoundly the confusion and loss and alienation and the emptiness of life. And he has incredible empathy for what we face. He doesn't sit there and just say, get over it, bud. All things work together. Come on, move ahead. No, he comes to us. And it's a lesson in how we approach our fellow human beings who are facing this brokenness. We don't cover over its pain and instability. We come with them honestly and brutally 
And like the preacher has done with us, we do it with them. It teaches us how to listen to people, how to think with them and feel with them and humbly realize that we're fellow human beings suffering under the same conditions. We don't give answers and solutions so quickly. Neither does he. In fact, most of it, uh, most of this book seems to be about the problem with these pockets, these shelters, these little oases, aces of, of light and blessing. And so God allows us to name our pain. Let's allow others to name their pain. God is hospitable to us in our agony and our questions and our maddening frustrations. Let's be hospitable to others as well. It's a great approach for evangelism in our day. Great approach for first conversations is that we fellow human beings humble ourselves. Eden is lost and it hurts. It calls for tears. It calls for groaning, as Paul says in Romans 8. He says, we groan and all creation groans in the face of of Eden lost in this world. Wise people cry. But as well, as we move on to the next point, wise people rejoice in the midst of tears. And so, not only are we under the hand of God, the inscrutable hand of God, we are under the approval of God. How do we find our Way in the midst of this broken world, and we recover our purpose, and that is a God centered relationship to everything around us. Calvin has said, We're prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. You see, looking around at the world does not allow us then to have this totally negative view about the world, but it is a backdrop in which more than ever the brilliant light of the good things he has given us breaks out to us so that they are seen as never before. It is our duty to delight in the good things he has given us. The pursuit of happiness in the good things God has given us is an inescapable duty, a responsibility to which we are commanded in this very passage. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Verse 8 may refer to that or it may be a bridge into your life with your wife even indicating preparation for intimacy with your wife. But nonetheless, verse 8 is, you have basically a party spirit every day in the midst of the grimness of life. And so we... There's this connection, as commentator after commentator pointed out, between Ecclesiastes and the first chapters of Genesis. And so there are still, in the midst of the concrete, these beautiful little flowers that 
stubbornly, assuredly grow in the cracks of the concrete. These bear witness to the goodness of God that it continues to us in this broken world. And so Brother Lawrence tells us that our actions every day should unite us to God when we are in our daily activities. That's the point of this passage. To try to go to the world and extract from the world in and by itself is absolutely fruitless and hopeless. But to come to this creation and the good things God gives us in this way, to expect that we will be united to God in them. Where is God found? He is found right here under the sun. It is not an escapist mentality. It is to find him in the ordinary things of your life. To be alert to God's presence with you. Our daily life and the everyday things you have is a visiting with him in them. Is that how we think of this? Is that how we think of our everyday life? He intends to provide us joy in him and joy in what he is giving us in this life. And so each aspect of your life becomes a kind of sanctuary for worship. What an amazing way to look at life and all the more astounding because it's put against an honest appraisal of the grimness of life. That's Ecclesiastes. To learn to get God in the midst of our ordinary joys. To gain him in our everyday life. It's sad that we ourselves have lost our thirst. Our appreciation for the everyday beauties that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. But he gives us the power to enjoy these as he says earlier. He he gives the gift, but he gives the power to enjoy them as well. And so in grimness, we continue to see his generosity. Those are two words to to bear in mind. Honest look at the grimness of life. But in the midst of grimness, this generosity of God that flows to us. And so their witnesses, their Not only traces of Eden that continue in the generosity of God, but their anticipations of the new creation in which these will be uh, blanket us in every way. Clear signs of the continuing presence and goodness of God in the brokenness of life. So, this... So, so uh, in Calvin and Hobbes, one of my favorites, I've got, I was given by someone the three volumes. It's on loan right now uh, to one of the young fellows in our church who loves Calvin and Hobbes. But um, this again was, has been long time a favorite of mine. Uh, so Calvin and Hobbes are under the tree, which they contemplate life so often. And Calvin is uh, thinking about the terrible things of life and how everyone must die. And he just declares in frustration, 
What's the point of even going on living? And of course, you know, uh, Hobbes loves tuna fish. Uh, Many times cans of empty tuna fish are found the next morning by the parents. And we know that Hobbes was up in the middle of the night or Calvin was up in the middle of the night feeding Hobbes. His uh, stuffed tiger who comes to life, of course. So he says, again, what's the meaning of life? Why do we even go on living? And Hobbes says, well, there is seafood. (laughs) And I just love that. There is seafood. And you can do this as well in the grimness of life. You can say, well, there, there are sunsets. There is a delicious omelet. There, there is the kiss of my wife. There is a cool breeze. There, there is that baby's laugh. There is the beer with the guys. There are all these things. There is seafood. <laughs> there is seafood. In the midst of saying all of these things about life... He says in chapter 3, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And so we embrace this beauty. He intends to be found in the middle of these everyday things, in oatmeal and walking the dog and working on a project or report or a car in a critical meeting, laughing on the floor with a six-month-old, repairing a door. We find true gain in this vain world with this witness of God in ordinary things. We must trust that he is present with us in these ordinary things and expect to find him in these ordinary things. And it's interesting that we approach Unbelievers in this way, as we talk about the things that are lost in this world and the pain of this world, then we can be like Paul, Paul speaking to the pagans. You remember, what did he bring to them in Acts 14 and Acts 17? He reminded them God didn't leave, did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. You see, as we ourselves are experiencing the everyday goodness of life, we become a testimony to the world in its brokenness and loss and pain that God is present in this world. Sometimes the first words are not about Jesus, as was with Paul, but about God in this world, in this painful world that he is to be had. And we are tasting his goodness, his availability, his willingness to give himself to us. We groan. Along with all creation, this groaning is relentless. But in everyday goodness, 
we get to enjoy him. We're even commanded to enjoy him. And I think there's some analogy here. You know, Boston has refused to be governed by the bomb at the Boston Marathon. New York would not allow the destruction of the ten twin towers to dictate how it would move strongly and positively into the future. And I would say in this way, we the terrorism of the curse cannot ultimately, for us believers, derail our joy in him. It must not derail that joy in him. So, even as we protest and say, but the world, everything is meaningless. And the preacher says, yeah, it is. Go kiss your wife. Yeah, but death is facing us. Right. Fix a sandwich and watch the sunrise or sunset. Maybe you sandwich in the sunrise too. That would be even better, huh? Life is a watch with frustration. Absolutely. Go to work. Do your job. Find me there. There's emptiness everywhere I look. Yes. Go create a new bed of flowers in the backyard. That's where the, that's where the preacher, that's where God is proclaiming to us the goodness of everyday life. Work, we're in the image, as he says in verse 10, to give ourselves completely to it. We're made in the image of this one who is a creator, the ultimate and most fantastic worker. And so we seek to thrive in our work, to pursue it with everything we have, to do it wholeheartedly, with full energy and attention. However, we may fall short of this. With all of our resourcefulness and creativity and diligence and persistence and perseverance. And while we work, we have the privilege of feeling his pleasure. Of knowing his favor and smile, his presence, his attendance, his enablement. He loves to see his people work. He loves to see his people relax and enjoy his good gifts. He has approved of these things. He has approved of these things. So while we can't take pleasure from life in isolation from God, which will only bring death, we receive these things as a gift from him. Therefore, there's humility. There's awe. There's dependence. There's thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment. And the only alternative to this reception and gratitude is to live as a person entitled. I deserve it. I have it coming to me. I don't have to pay attention to the one who gave it to me. I will grab it out of his hands and I will ignore him as I focus on it. That is to purposely wound yourself, to purposely ruin yourself. My illustration that I've given to high schoolers the whole time I've been here in most of my little talks to the seniors is a bucket full of holes that you dip that bucket down into life, life 
only in itself. And you pull it up. And by the time you get up to try to drink from it, it's empty. And you drop it again and you pull it up. You drop it again and you pull it up. And then you start banging the bucket against the side. You start kicking it. You start beating it with a hammer. And you dip it down and you pull it up. It will never hold life for you. But if that bucket is within this other bucket of the presence of God, of seeking him in those things, of fellowshipping with him, of living with awe and gratitude to him as you enjoy them, then it pulls up buckets and buckets of rich water. Because you're not made. You're too noble for this world. Eternity is in your heart, it says in Ecclesiastes. It can't satisfy you. But this world in the presence of God, in union with God, will richly benefit you. You're queens and kings of earth. You're made to oversee and care for the earth. You can't find your meaning and satisfaction in that earth. You're too majestic for that. You've been etched and tooled and shaped for God. So he gives you these gifts. As it says in Ecclesiastes 5, he gives you the power to enjoy them as well. Satisfaction sold separately. (laughs) That is, the gifts themselves won't. But he gives you the power in his presence and under his hand to enjoy them. So that we are depending on our always sovereign Ever happy Lord. So, are you taking the gifts of God unexamined, unread, as C.S. Lewis would say, not reading from whom hand, whose hand they've come, and not to rejoice in Him and fellowship with Him in the midst of them? It is a hard command. To enjoy as it's stated in these verses. But that's the command that's given to us. And as Riken says, we live in a world that's cursed by sin, but it is also a world that God created essentially good and that he has visited in the flesh and is working to redeem through the life, death and resurrection of his son. And so layered over this statement in Ecclesiastes is that God himself has visited this world in the flesh. And he is redeeming and will redeem this world and unite all things in himself. And thankfully, Jesus will take our moment by moment attempts at at godliness. I'm sorry, at godless happiness. All of our attempts to ignore God, he will take them upon himself and die in our place that we might be forgiven of all that. And he will purchase for us moment by moment relationship with the father. That's what Christ will do for you. Forgiveness for how you've ever ignored him and to grant you a new life of moment by moment relationship with the father in this world. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that through your redemption, the flowers that are blooming around us,
can be noticed again. They can be seen again. They can be enjoyed again. Oh, Lord, ever give us an increasing and large capacity to delight in you in the everyday things of life. Oh, bring us there, Lord. Save us. Rescue us. Give us yourself in all things. Amen. Here's the ultimate statement of the favor of God that we sit at table with God. I would remind you that when we uh, hand out the supper, it's as though we're all at one table. We're all sitting around one table. And Jesus is serving us himself. Jesus bids us sit down as those forgiven of our sins, as those who have been given the grace to enjoy him in every aspect of our lives. And it is declared so graphically here by the very death and, and, and suffering of Jesus for us so that he might bring us into this intimate fellowship that is a picture of the continuing intimate fellowship that you can have with him all throughout every day in whatever you do. Praise be his name. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this Glorious supper that we have with you. This glorious communion and fellowship with you. As we feed upon the symbols of your body and your blood. As we, Lord, take you to ourselves. As we receive from you forgiveness and renewal of life. That we might live every part of our lives in your presence. Oh, we praise you, Lord. That you have suffered unimaginably so that we might live in joy in this life. Even against the darkness and grimness of a fallen world. We praise you, O King Jesus. Amen.